The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. And the Cold War is back. It's Thursday, April 19th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors, including Audible.com and the PayPal donate button at BuzzBurbank.com. The Cold War is back, but with a vengeance. Those are the words of the Secretary General of the United Nations as the UN Security Council met Friday before the bombing started. There is a difference, said Antonio Guterres. Unlike the Cold War between the U.S. and Russia in the 60s and 70s, in this one, quote, the safeguards to manage the risks of escalation no longer seem to be present. The situation, the Secretary General said, is spiraling out of control. Back at the White House, Defense Secretary James Mattis was urging caution. Like many Americans who went to bed anxiously Friday night, Mattis before them had worried that bombing Syria for its gassing of civilians would escalate into an all-out war, pitting the U.S. against Russia and Iran. Involving U.S. allies at ground zero in Syria could mean a third world war, especially if Russians were among the victims. The president, after all, had bragged about the size of his button, had made war hawk James Bolton his national security advisor, and had promised an attack on Syria involving American missiles that are, quote, nice and new and smart. We are trying to stop the murder of innocent people, said Jim Mattis in a White House meeting. On a strategic level, he asked, how do we keep this from escalating out of control if you get my drift? Administration officials agreed that despite Syria's support from Russia, Syria had to be punished for the mass killing of its own people with internationally banned chemical weapons. We definitely have enough proof, said our ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. We just have to be thoughtful in our action, she added. Defense Secretary Mattis was taking a stronger stand behind closed doors. He believed we didn't and still don't have enough convincing evidence that a banned chemical weapon, sarin gas, had been used. Other than chlorine, we don't even know what, if any, other chemicals were used in that attack. Mattis knew Syria was behind the attack. He just didn't know if it had broken international law by using sarin. Mattis said he thought the administration ought to wait for approval from Congress before striking Syria. But Mattis was overruled. We would attack without the proof. We would attack without congressional approval. The Washington Post reports Trump told Mattis he wanted a response to the gassing that was both dramatic and quick. Taking note of his White House audience, Mattis called for balance in the U.S. military response. The U.N. Secretary General urged all nations involved to proceed carefully. Americans went to bed nervously Friday night. Many of us frightened about what would happen now that the U.S., France, and Britain had dropped bombs on chemical facilities in Russia-backed Syria. Germany refused to join the Allies' military response to the latest Syrian gassing, still waiting for proof from the United Nations investigation while also condemning any use of chemical weapons. Because of that lack of proof, British Prime Minister Theresa May is now facing criticism for following the whims of an American president. Trump had gotten the same advice on Syria that Obama had gotten, don't get us into something we can't get out of. Trump didn't want to do what Obama had done, that is, promise a response to Syrian gassings without delivering. And Friday evening, Trump announced the airstrikes were underway as part of what he indicated would be a sustained military effort. And Americans went to bed anxiously. Saturday morning, 
brought reason to believe this military action would not be the beginning of a sustained effort. It was over in two minutes, with much of Syria's chemical facilities erased from the map, with few, if any, casualties and no losses among the U.S. or its allies. Best of all, Russia didn't respond militarily and apparently wouldn't. World War III did not materialize because of that balanced, limited, and carefully targeted Allied attack and because it did not bring a military response. Trump, after all, had warned Russia and Syria days earlier that American missiles were coming, giving both time to move equipment and personnel out of harm's way. As a candidate, Trump criticized presidents for telegraphing their military intentions. The attack also isn't likely to change anything in Syria. It remains almost completely intact, still backed by Russia and still hosting the Iranian military as well. Trump, having carried out his promise to punish Syria, even if only mildly, declared, mission accomplished. It was a surprising choice of words, considering the lack of luck President George W. Bush had with that phrase in Iraq. At another emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council, Ambassador Nikki Haley said, I spoke to the president this morning and he said if the Syrian regime uses this poisonous gas again, the United States is locked and loaded. When our president draws a red line, she said, our president enforces the red line. Haley announced even more new sanctions against Russia, this time for its backing of the slaughter in Syria. She would later be contradicted by Trump, who would on Monday walk back Haley's bold announcement of new sanctions. The White House claimed that Ambassador Haley was perhaps confused, even though some administration officials describe her as one of the most careful and disciplined members of Trump's cabinet. Later, Haley retorted, I don't get confused. And a White House advisor demurred, saying perhaps it was he who was confused. Trump exploded with anger. Quoting a U.S. official on Haley's staff, lots of people got yelled at, some by the president. Watching Haley condemn Russia on the Sunday morning news talk shows, aides say Trump barked at the screen, who wrote that for her? Trump did not say why he walked back Haley's announcement of new sanctions. Insiders say he was not yet comfortable with imposing them. Speculators say he was again bowing to Russia in that Donald Trump may be compromised in his role as president for whatever Russia may have on him, be it personal or financial, the walkback came as no surprise. Trump also exploded in anger last month when he found out the U.S. had expelled 60 Russian diplomats, the same number as the European Union. Trump was angry because he didn't want to be the lead country on the diplomatic expulsions. He wanted to match but not exceed the expulsions of other European countries, and he was angry to learn that we had matched the European total instead of matching what other individual countries have done. Trump didn't want Russia to see the U.S. as being out front on the punishment for a poisoning of a former spy and his daughter inside Britain's borders. Quoting one White House source, there was swearing, a lot of swearing. While Trump continues to avoid punishing Russia for its interference with our election, while the Trump campaign and the Trump administration have worked to undo the sanctions Obama put in place, while that administration drags its feet on the sanctions imposed by this Congress, and while Trump the tweeter badmouths everyone but Putin, he has now put the brakes on the new sanctions proposed by U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. And when Haley warned the Security Council that new sanctions against Russia were coming, Trump was furious. These were not the instructions he believed he had given. But despite his anger, Trump is reportedly still generally pleased with Haley's work, especially on Syria, 
By Saturday night, Americans were a little less anxious than they had been the night before and growing accustomed to the chaos of being told we're getting out of Syria only to hurriedly bomb it and to say that we're punishing Russia only to then say that we're not. And by Sunday night, Americans had gathered around their digital displays to hear from the man Trump had spent the weekend calling a slippery slime ball. As they had with Stormy Daniels, viewers were looking to better inform their decisions whether to believe Trump, who by Washington Post estimates lies publicly five to six times a day on average, or the by-the-book Boy Scout who chooses his words carefully. Comey was hoping to sell the book he'd released this week, but also looking to underscore his honesty and to explain himself. Comey explained his reasoning for announcing the off-and-on, mostly fruitless investigation of Clinton's emails days before the election and saying nothing about the investigation into Russian election interference and its possible connection to the Trump campaign. Comey said he wanted his agency to be transparent on those emails to keep Clinton's presidency from being viewed as illegitimate because, wait for it, he thought Clinton would win. We all did. Even Donald Trump thought Clinton would win. Comey didn't want it to come out later that just before the election, he had not revealed the email investigation. Comey said nothing about the Trump-Russia investigation because at that moment, he had nothing to report. The Trump part of that investigation had only just begun. He says he went around then Attorney General Loretta Lynch to protect her from accusations of bias since she had, perhaps foolishly, met privately with Bill Clinton during the investigation. Besides, says Comey, he thought Hillary would win. In Sunday night's ABC interview, Comey says he didn't vote in the 2016 election, but that his wife voted for Hillary Clinton. After the election, Comey began to take copious, contemporaneous notes about his unusual conversations with this new president, notes that have been verified by Comey's ex-colleagues at the FBI. In the book, A Higher Loyalty, former FBI Director Jim Comey calls Trump unethical and untethered to truth. He says Trump's leadership is ego-driven, comparing Trump's demands for loyalty to that of a mob boss. And Comey's investigated a few mob bosses in his long career in law enforcement. Comey writes that Trump asked if he, quote, seemed like a guy who needed the service of prostitutes. Comey says the president then listed numerous sexual assault accusations against him as if he'd memorized which woman had claimed what. And Comey says it was Trump who, quote, brought up what he called the golden showers thing, adding that it bothered him if there was even a 1% chance his wife Melania thought it was true. The part of the Steele dossier that Comey says Trump asked him to disprove says the hooker's performance took place on a bed used by Barack and Michelle Obama when they had visited Moscow. Comey quotes Trump as saying, Another reason you know this isn't true? I'm a germaphobe. There's no way I would let people pee on each other around me. No way. But what really struck Comey was Trump's focus on that instead of how we could stop the Russian attack that Comey had come to the Oval Office to report. And then in a private conversation also sharing the contents of that Steele dossier. The dossier indicated the Russians had video of the alleged hooker incident compromising the future and current president of the United States. Later, Comey says Trump asked him what could be done to lift the cloud because it was so painful for Melania. We cannot lose sight of the fact that James Comey is trying to win a credibility contest and sell a lot of books. But his book and his interviews this week have revealed a man who seemingly couldn't be more different than this president. 
After the election, President Obama called Comey into the Oval Office to say, I picked you to be FBI director because of your integrity and your ability, and I want you to know that nothing, nothing has happened in this past year to change my view. Comey says he was on the verge of tears, telling Obama, boy, those are the words I needed to hear. I'm trying, I'm just trying to do the right thing. I know, said Obama, I know. Comey writes in his book, what is happening now is not normal. It is not fake news. It is not okay. In that credibility contest so far, we believe Comey over Trump. To be fair, most Americans have no opinion of Comey, about a third of us by a Washington Post-ABC News poll. The remaining two-thirds is fairly evenly split on whether they see Comey in a favorable or unfavorable light. But when it comes to the question of who do you believe in this story, Comey wins, 48% to Trump's 32. And by about those same numbers, most of us oppose Trump's firing of James Comey. Even after his Clinton email revelations, Comey has the approval of nearly half of all Democrats, and he's approved by almost as many Republicans. To Donald Trump, those are numbers that are ripe for marketing and branding. And so began the name-calling and the threats to lock up Jim Comey. After quotes from Comey's book seeped out late last week, Trump took to Twitter on Friday calling Comey a weak and untruthful slimeball, a leaker, and a liar. And so Trump continued his attacks on James Comey, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, former Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe, and the news media. And Trump got and is getting a lot of help with these attacks from Republicans in Congress and the Republican National Committee. The RNC now has a Lion Comey website and is posting ads on digital media as well as delivering talking points to Republicans around the country every day. Republican Party officials hope to capitalize on Democrats still bitter about Comey's revelation of Clinton's email investigation. CNN reports the party plan, as approved by the White House, will portray Comey as a man just out for himself, out to make money, and out to repair his reputation from the damage his own mistakes have done. The White House is also working on a campaign to discredit Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who oversees Bob Mueller's investigation. CNN reports the White House was preparing talking points aimed at undermining Rosenstein's credibility and suggesting the Deputy AG has conflicts. The Trump administration plan is to make Trump supporters see Rosenstein and Comey as buds when in fact they are not. Unlike the plan to discredit Comey, the White House is going this one alone without the RNC. All of this apparently inspired some soul-searching by Rosenstein that perhaps he should consider recusing himself from the Russia investigation. Republicans say Rosenstein should recuse, arguing that Rosenstein may become a witness in the investigation. CNN reports Rosenstein began asking around. Last year, he spoke with Bob Mueller himself about it. They agreed there was no need for Rosenstein to recuse for as long as he's not part of the case. Rosenstein got the same answer recently when he put that same question to the Justice Department's ethics advisor. At last check, Trump was considering firing Rosenstein and or Mueller, something Republicans in Congress have advised him not to do, something they've promised he wouldn't do, which is why they say they won't even vote on a bill that would protect the Russia investigation. It was that fellow Republican Rod Rosenstein who oversees the Russia investigation and who okayed the raid on Trump's lawyer's office, a raid one source tells CNN angered Trump, adding he'll be pissed about it until he dies. More about that raid and that lawyer in a moment. 
But Trump has one other target still, former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who was the target of a Justice Department Inspector General report last week that accused him of leaking and lying. Charges McCabe denies, arguing he was authorized to release the information he'd released. McCabe wanted it known that the FBI was aggressively investigating the Clinton Foundation against the wishes of the Bureau's parent, the Department of Justice. It was a misstep on McCabe's part, even if it's not why he was fired. McCabe's leak gave the president fodder for Twitter, offering an opportunity to write the word LIED in all caps with an exclamation point several times. McCabe was totally controlled by Comey, tweeted Trump, adding, McCabe is Comey, double exclamation marks for extra emphasis. The report on McCabe was released just before the end of the week's news cycle as a sort of punctuation mark on another bad week for Donald Trump. Maybe his worst week ever. Although Trump lawyer Michael Cohen has denied ever going to Prague, sources have told the McClatchy News Service that Cohen did go to Prague in the heat of the campaign in late summer of 2016 to meet with Russians. Whether that trip did or didn't take place may be the keystone of a case for collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. For one thing, it would prove a previously unproven claim in the Steele dossier. The more parts of that dossier that are proven, the more credible the entire document becomes. McClatchy reports it was Cohen who wound up managing the relationship between the Trump campaign and Russia once Paul Manafort had been fired. Going to Moscow itself would have been too risky. Cohen reportedly visited Prague to meet with the Russians in the last week of August or the first week of September of 2016, flying to Germany and then taking a train to Prague in the Czech Republic, which is why the passport Cohen proudly displays doesn't mention any trips to Prague. Once you're in any country in the European Union, you are then free to travel to other countries in the EU without a passport stamp. Cohen still denies he went to Prague despite McClatchy's reporting that Bob Mueller believes he did. In the image of his main client, Cohen calls this fake news. But Mr. Cohen is in serious legal peril. So much so, Trump has turned to another lawyer who's assured him the government has so much on Cohen, there's a near zero chance that Cohen won't flip and testify against Trump. Trump and his advisors are now reportedly more worried about the investigation of Trump's lawyers than they are about the Russia investigation. The FBI had been investigating Cohen's business dealings for months, including his ownership of New York City taxicab licenses, which are issued as medallions. By showing a judge evidence Trump lawyer Michael Cohen might destroy documents sought by the FBI, prosecutors convinced the judge those documents should not just be subpoenaed, they should be taken in an unannounced raid. In that raid on his office, home, and hotel room, and safe deposit box, the G-men took Cohen's files, his cell phones, his laptop and tablet, and cleaned out his safe deposit box. They got financial documents. They got emails. They got everything. Cohen, who solidified his reputation as a fixer, is being investigated for, among other things, his $130,000 payment to porn star Stormy Daniels that Trump said he knows nothing about. Cohen also communicated with those involved in a $150,000 deal with former Playboy model Karen McDougal, who says she had an affair with Trump in Trump's second year of marriage to Melania. Those payments are not protected by attorney-client privilege, especially if Trump knew nothing about it, as he claims. 
Also not covered by privilege is the $1.5 million payoff we learned this week Cohen had arranged to silence a former Playboy model who'd been impregnated by Elliot Broidy, the married co-chair for fundraising with the Republican National Committee. Broidy has, because of this revelation, resigned that job. The other co-chair is Michael Cohen, who has so far managed to keep his job with the Republican Party, even though it was Cohen who arranged the hush money. And because Cohen had represented Trump in some of Trump's trickiest challenges, both personally and professionally, a lot of what was seized could tell us much about the president, who is also under investigation. Cohen handled this litany of sexual abuse accusations against Trump that surfaced during the campaign, and he handled the journalist who chased these stories. He dealt with Trump's competitors in business as well. After the FBI raid on Michael Cohen, Trump called Cohen on the phone to check in. Trump has the right to get legal counsel from his own lawyer, but investigators don't like it when two of their subjects converse. At the very least, such conversations make it appear the subjects are conspiring to get their story straight, so that phone call could mean even more trouble for Trump, depending on what was discussed. Trump's lawyers felt ready for the Mueller probe. They were not expecting this. They were not prepared for this. Trump and his lawyers immediately argued that much of what the feds had seized is protected by attorney-client privilege. Some of it might be. And that's when the FBI calls in its taint team or filter team to determine which documents are evidence of criminal conspiracy and which are not. Trump's lawyers argued in federal court they should be allowed to filter those documents first before the FBI's taint team. They asked for a temporary restraining order. Prosecutors argued the investigation isn't about Cohen's work as a lawyer, of which he actually did very little. Instead, they say it was about Cohen's business dealings and about the part he played unofficially in the Trump campaign. They want, for example, all of Cohen's communications with campaign advisors Hope Hicks and Corey Lewandowski. And lordy, there are tapes. People who know him say Michael Cohen frequently recorded his conversations. So although Cohen's told friends he did not record his conversations with Trump, the fruits of this search warrant will confirm or dispute that. Cohen had apparently discussed with Trump the Access Hollywood tape that appeared a month before Election Day. Cohen's homemade recordings are now in the hands of the FBI. The Bureau has its own tapes, too, from wiretapping Cohen's phone during its months-long investigation of him. And those conversations include chats with Donald J. Trump. Quoting one reporter, not since Nixon have recordings had so much potential to bring down a president. It was on Friday of last week that Trump fumed about the raid on his lawyer, and that was the day Trump lawyer and Michael Cohen's lawyer went to federal court to get that restraining order and ask that they be allowed to filter what was seized in that raid before the feds look at it. Their request was denied. When they all returned to court on Monday, including Michael Cohen and his lawyer and Stormy Daniels and her lawyer and the federal prosecutors. The judge ruled that Trump's and Cohen's lawyers may not get the first look, but she did agree to perhaps let the material be reviewed by a third attorney, one who has no connection to or interest in this case, to decide what's relevant and what's not, a special master in legal terms. It was in Monday's hearing that we learned that at least five paragraphs of what would appear in the government's search warrant for its raid on Cohen's office, those five paragraphs in Cohen's court documents pertains specifically to Donald Trump. And as if all this weren't spectacle enough, 
One other truly remarkable thing happened in that Monday hearing in federal court in New York. In the discussion of how much the Cohen investigation focused on business dealings not covered by attorney-client privilege, we were reminded that Cohen hasn't been doing much lawyering at all in the past few years. In the past year, he's had only three clients, Trump, a fundraising co-chairman from the Republican National Committee, and one other person who didn't want their identity revealed. The judge didn't seem to like the sound of an anonymous client and was about to let Cohen's lawyer submit that client's name in a sealed envelope. And then that remarkable thing happened, like something out of the movies. A man in the gallery rose to address the judge and identified himself as Robert Balin, an attorney for news organizations including the New York Times, CNN, the Associated Press, and ABC News. The judge was all ears for a concise speech delivered with cinematic passion. Said the unexpected lawyer, There is no credible claim that this client's mere identity is attorney-client privileged information. I hardly need to remind the court of the intense public interest in the issues currently before this court. I look around, and I see that every other seat is occupied by a member of the press. Ultimately, however your honor rules, the public is going to want to know the basis for your ruling. That's the very nature of the First Amendment access right, so that we the people and the press can monitor our institutions and have a rational basis for agreeing or disagreeing. Finally, Your Honor, said this media lawyer, I would make one last point. It was Justice Berger who I think put it well. People in our open society do not demand infallibility from their institutions, but it is difficult for them to accept what they are prohibited from observing. If your honor is going to order disclosure of this name, I see no basis for denying public access to that name. The judge agreed with the speech, which has proven to be as historically important as it was breathtaking. And in the awkward moments that followed that negotiated the release of the name of Michael Cohen's mystery client, it seemed things couldn't get any more dramatic. And then they did. The third Cohen client after Donald Trump and Republican fundraiser Elliot Brody is Fox News Channel's brightest star, Trump supporter Sean Hannity. Jaws dropped in the courtroom. People gasped. With Bill O'Reilly gone, the highest paid and most primetime face at Fox News had a secret legal relationship with a lawyer he'd had on his show many times without ever disclosing that relationship. Hannity had been reporting for months on Cohen and his fellow client Donald Trump without reporting his own conflict of interest. Trump has tweeted that people should watch Hannity's show, and Trump tells staffers what Hannity had told him in their private phone chats, according to the Washington Post. Trump calls Hannity several times a week still, either early in the morning or at 10 at night after Hannity wraps up his show. The Post says Hannity gives advice on handling Mueller and on what Trump should tweet and that the conversations often get Hannity himself fired up for his next show. There's been a kind of hotline between the president and Fox News. Fox has led the charge on firing Bob Mueller and Rod Rosenstein. Referring to the close consultation between Trump and Hannity, one presidential advisor told the Washington Post, He basically has a desk in the place. Sean Hannity has made no secret over the years of his friendship with Trump lawyer Michael Cohen. What he kept secret is that he's also a client. 
Hannity says he's asked Cohen the occasional legal question about real estate, but insists he never paid Cohen and that no third parties were ever involved. Hannity insists Cohen was not his lawyer, but says he assumes his conversations with Cohen are confidential. Quoting Hannity, we definitely had attorney-client privilege, adding, I might have handed him 10 bucks. I definitely want your attorney-client privilege on this. Something like that, end quote. So Hannity's claiming on one hand that Cohen is not his lawyer and on the other claiming lawyer-client privilege. Prosecutors say Cohen was Hannity's lawyer and that Cohen did legal work on Hannity's behalf and that Hannity was one of Cohen's only three law clients in 2017. Other than real estate advice, why else might Sean Hannity require the services of a fixer like Michael Cohen? Well, a former Fox News contributor has accused Hannity of sexual harassment after he allegedly invited her back to his hotel room where she says she declined that opportunity. After one more uncomfortable appearance on Hannity's show, Debbie Schlussel was never invited to return. And Schlussel thinks we should also be asking why Hannity's former executive producer a female, quit. If any of this proves true, Hannity may have to go the way of Bill O'Reilly and the late chairman of Fox News, Roger Ailes. We've since learned that Hannity has at least two other attorneys, both also connected to Donald Trump. One is Jay Sekulow, another Fox News talking head who represents the president to this day. The other is Victoria Tensing, Tensing and her husband Joe DeGeneva were recently invited to join Trump's legal team in the Russia case. They declined. And Fox News is not the only Trump-loving media outlet that may be in trouble with the law. The National Enquirer, published by a close friend of Trump's, was the source of the $150,000 paid to Playboy's Karen McDougal. And now we know the Enquirer also paid thirty grand to a doorman at one of Trump's buildings, the Trump World Tower near the United Nations building in New York. The doorman was reportedly paid not to talk about rumors that Trump had fathered a child with a woman who worked in that building. And the watchdog group Common Cause says that payment also appears to have been a violation of campaign finance laws as an unreported contribution to prevent an election loss by Trump. The doorman believes he was telling the truth as he passed a lie detector test, but reporters have so far been unable to prove any part of the rumor the doorman was paid not to talk about. The Inquirer insists it was simply paying for a tip that didn't pan out, when in fact the supermarket tabloid only pays for tips that get printed, usually. As for Karen McDougal, she is now free to tell her story as many times as she likes, the Inquirer's parent company, AMI, has now let her out of her contract of silence as it, too, is now a subject of an FBI criminal investigation. And McDougal's lawsuit against AMI could have led to the owner's friend Donald Trump being compelled to answer written questions from McDougal's lawyer. So much more ahead. Will Trump fire Bob Mueller? Scott Pruitt's Cone of Silence? How's your gun outrage? Another hero pilot? And Bob Seska? after this. Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link for any reason, please support this free newscast through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. 
A new report from BuzzFeed says a Russian spy helped Trump's business team look for money to finance a Trump Tower in Moscow during the 2016 campaign. BuzzFeed has not named the spy because it's been told by U.S. intelligence that to do so would endanger the spy's life. Russian spies who risk exposing Putin's mischief often die mysterious deaths or pick up a nerve agent from their door handles. This revelation about the spy and the Trump Tower Moscow is new, and this too is big. Like the Trump Tower meeting during the campaign, Cohen's trip to Prague to meet with Russians and the revelation that a Russian spy tried to help Trump build in Moscow during the campaign is more damning evidence of outright collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. And we know Trump lawyer Michael Cohen was also involved, receiving a letter from Trump associate and convicted felon Felix Sater saying Sater would, quote, get all of Putin's team to buy in on the Trump Tower deal. With the obstruction of justice case already wrapped up, the collusion case appears to be coagulating into what must surely be its final version. It's become obvious there will never be an interview of Donald Trump by the special counsel's Russia investigation. And NBC News reports the Mueller team is now moving ahead without that interview. The talks between Trump's lawyers and Mueller's prosecutors have stopped now that the FBI has raided the files of Trump's lawyer. The interview had come this close to happening. Trump had begun to informally rehearse for it. Lawyers on both sides were down to the final details. Trump continued searching for lawyers and others who could help him prepare for an interview he said he was eager to give. But all of that changed when the FBI got a warrant and raided Michael Cohen's stuff. Mueller already had the stuff related to Russia at all. Now the FBI had Cohen's records on Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal, and other women, the National Enquirer, and more. That definitely crosses the red line that Trump had drawn earlier on the Mueller investigation. So, the nation continues to watch to see whether Trump will carry out his expressed wishes to fire special counsel Robert Mueller. If that happens, the protests are still on. The Guardian reports that over a third of a million people have committed to marching in protest if or when Mueller is fired. That's three times the number of people who'd promised to march when the marches were planned last December. As Trump has stepped up his attacks on the FBI, the Justice Department, and Mueller himself, more people have agreed to be at their local rallies in towns big and small. 20,000 signed up just on the day that Trump told reporters many people had advised him to fire Mueller. There was another surge in protest commitments when the White House press secretary, Sarah Sanders, followed up by telling reporters that Trump, quote, certainly believes he has the power to fire Mueller. MoveOn.org, the activist website that outlines the details of the protest, says 800 emergency rallies are planned across the country in places red and blue. If Trump fires Mueller before 2 p.m. your time, your local march is at 5 p.m. that same day. If Mueller's fired after 2, the protest is at noon the following day. And more than 300,000 people stand ready, likely to be joined by tens of thousands more. Congress could act to prevent the firing of Bob Mueller. Will it? Probably not. At the height of the Watergate scandal, even Republicans who had supported Nixon turned against him, scrambling for their own political survival and a place in the right side of history. That could happen again in 2018, but it probably won't. 
Trump has been advised from every direction that it would be extremely unwise and self-incriminating for him to fire Mueller. But that advice has likely rolled off the man who said he could kill a guy on Fifth Avenue and his supporters would still stand with him. That advice has likely had little effect on the man who has repeatedly asked about and talked about firing Mueller and or his boss, Rod Rosenstein. The Republicans in Congress know all of this. They've heard and seen everything you have heard and seen. And yet, they are refusing to act to protect the Mueller probe. They reminded us of this day before yesterday. Outgoing House Speaker Paul Ryan repeated that legislation to protect Mueller is unnecessary because of, quote, the kinds of conversations we've had. Ryan said he thinks Trump knows it would not be in his interest to fire Mueller. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell ensured his place in history by saying, I'm the one who decides what we take to the floor. We'll not be having this on the floor of the Senate. Republicans are refusing to safeguard Mueller because they claim Trump won't fire him based on the advice he's been given. McConnell says he wouldn't even allow a vote on such a proposal, even if the bill were backed by both Democrats and Republicans. Democratic leader Chuck Schumer naturally takes a different view, quoting him, we ought to head off a constitutional crisis at the pass rather than waiting until it's too late. Republicans, not so much. That Republican stance and campaign money from Russia are the focus of this week's commentary from Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. For some time now, there have been random stories and more than a few rumors about the Republican Party's links to Russian money and, more importantly, Russia's attack on our democratic institutions. We generally know the extent of what the head of the party, President David Dennison, has been up to for more than a few years now, but questions remain about the party establishment's link to all of this. And now, given the most recent string of remarks by turtly enough for the Turtle Club, Mitch McConnell and others, we have no choice but to wonder whether congressional GOP chiefs are aiding Trump in his flailing attempts to obstruct the special counsel's investigation. Before we dig into McConnell, let's take a look at Trump's record of firing people linked to the investigation into, you know, Trump. So far, peer-duplicated articles by the Washington Post and the New York Times, among others, have informed us that Trump attempted to fire Robert Mueller on at least two occasions that we know about, once in June and a second time in December. There's also a renewed threat warming up in the on-deck circle, the impending firing of Rosenstein in retaliation for the no-knock raid on Michael Cohen's office, home, hotel room, and bank deposit box. Trump, meanwhile, confessed to firing James Comey in order to stop this, quote, Russia thing with Trump and Russia, and he said it on national television. Worth noting, Trump on Wednesday denied firing Comey to obstruct the Russia probe. No, you're not insane. Fast forwarding to last week, when asked whether he'd fire Mueller, Trump responded, quote, why don't I just fire Mueller? Well, I think it's a disgrace what's going on. We'll see what happens. Many people have said you should fire him. Again, they found nothing. And in finding nothing, that's a big statement, unquote. We also know that Trump last year fired U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara from his post in the Southern District of New York, Manhattan to be specific. Today, that particular firing takes on an entirely new dimension, given the SDNY's Cohen investigation, including the aforementioned raids, court hearings, and yeah, the taint team. Meanwhile, Trump crapped out more than a few tweets indicating that Jeff Sessions is on his ever-lengthening shit list, see also his recusal tantrums, and therefore could be fired at any time. I mean, hell, you're fired is a major part of the Trump brand. It's what he's famous for. And yet, 
Congressional leadership doesn't seem to be the slightest bit concerned. McConnell on Tuesday repeated his casual reaction to the possibility of Trump firing Mueller and added an all-new level of stubbornness to it. McConnell said, quote, I don't think he should fire Mueller, and I don't think he's going to. He continued, this is a piece of legislation that isn't necessary in my judgment. Oh, really? McConnell's lackadaisical attitude doesn't make any sense, given what we know about the president. Even if Trump assured McConnell privately that he wouldn't fire anyone linked to the investigation, why would McConnell trust Trump to abide his own pledge? Trump's the most dishonest human to occupy the Oval Office. There's no reason to believe his word and every reason to believe he'll stop at nothing to kill this investigation. Short of a valid explanation, then, we have no choice but to conclude that the Republican leadership is in major jeopardy if Mueller's work continues. Put another way, from this point forward, it's safe to assume the Republicans are co-conspirators helping Trump to bury Mueller by their own inaction to protect him. From here, the next question is this. Is McConnell covering for Trump because he's protecting the president, or is McConnell covering for Trump because the GOP is terrified of what Mueller might learn and subsequently expose? Stick around, we'll get into that. And then there's the House side, where the lower chamber Republicans, specifically Devin Nunes, seem desperate to obstruct Mueller, going so far as to take extreme measures, making it more than a little obvious that they're concerned about what Mueller might have on them, too. By the way, keep a close eye on Nunes and his badgering of Rosenstein. But McConnell's history on this matter snakes all the way back to the campaign when then-President Obama sought bipartisan cooperation in releasing the details of the Russian attack prior to the election. McConnell famously refused to go along with Obama at the time, adding more suspicion to this week's chain of events. So where am I going with this? It turns out there's a gigantic pile of illegal Russian money sitting in the GOP war chest at the moment, that is, if it hasn't already been spent. How do we know? Well, firstly, Mueller's already looking into it. And more shockingly, we discovered last year that at least $7.35 million was funneled to Republican campaign packs from a Ukraine-born Russian oligarch with direct links to Oleg Deripaska and Vladimir Putin. And looky who received $2.5 million of that cash. A Dallas Morning News article stated during the 2015-2016 election season, Ukrainian-born billionaire Leonid Blavitnik contributed $6.35 million to leading Republican candidates and incumbent senators. Mitch McConnell was the top recipient of Blavitnik's donations, collecting $2.5 million for his GOP Senate leadership fund under the names of two of Blavitnik's holding companies, Access Industries and Al Altep Holdings according to Federal Election Commission documents and OpenSecrets.org. So, for emphasis, Mitch McConnell was the top recipient of Blavitnik's donations. Naturally, at the very least, this compromises McConnell's ability to make rational decisions about the fate of the Mueller investigation, given that McConnell has so much to gain and so much to lose, depending on how he reacts to Trump's chaotic antics. McConnell doesn't believe for a second that Trump will lay off Mueller. McConnell knows Mueller could be sacked at any second, and he just doesn't care. Indeed, I'd wager McConnell prefers that this whole investigation has disappeared like Russian dissidents and the Senate leaders willing to let shitty grandpa in the Oval Office do all the heavy lifting. Incidentally, don't expect McConnell to support any impeachment attempts should Mueller get canned. The Russians have too much cash invested in the party for the GOP to hit the emergency shutoff valve now. Instead, if Mueller goes, you can expect McConnell to shrug his slimy little shoulders and say, well, we should let the American people decide. And that's all. Yes, the Republican Party is owned by the Russians now.
it helps to say it out loud. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. And a bill to protect Bob Mueller could still get a vote without the support of Mitch McConnell. Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley says he gave his word on this last fall if Democrats cooperated with him. They did. And now he says he feels an obligation to deliver his promise. Not only are many Republicans in Congress refusing to protect Mueller, they are working to interfere with Mueller's investigation. You'll recognize the names among these Trump faithful, Devin Nunes, Trey Gowdy, and Bob Goodlatte. This Trump trio has sent a letter to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein demanding he turn over, unredacted, all of James Comey's memos about his conversations with Trump. Comey is a witness in the Mueller investigation, and his memos are evidence in that investigation. And House Republicans have threatened repeatedly to find Justice Department officials in contempt of Congress for not cooperating with their investigation-thwarting efforts. Republicans have, in fact, tried to get their hands on more than one million pages of documents from the start of the Russia probe and from the fruitless investigations of Hillary Clinton. Republicans are calling on Attorney General Sessions to investigate Hillary again, along with Jim Comey, Andrew McCabe, former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, former Acting Attorney General Dana Bente, and the two FBI agents who had texted each other about many things, including the Russia probe. So, the hundreds of thousands of Americans ready to take to the streets will do so without any help from this Republican Congress. Last night, Trump told reporters people have speculated for months about whether he'd fire Rosenstein and or Mueller and added, it hasn't happened yet. Meanwhile, back at the White House, Trump pardoned Scooter Libby. Trump says he's never met Mr. Libby, but Trump says he's heard for years that Libby had been treated unfairly, so Trump pardoned him. As Dick Cheney's chief of staff in the George W. Bush administration, Libby was convicted for lying under oath about the intentionally exposed identity of an American CIA agent. Libby was clearly conducting a cover-up on behalf of the person who had exposed that CIA agent's identity, making Libby himself complicit in that exposure. Trump had pardoned former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who had been convicted of criminal contempt for refusing court orders to stop locking up people he thought might be undocumented immigrants. Trump had made it clear with Arpaio that he could do pardons. In pardoning Libby as the Mueller investigation closes in, pardoning a man he heard had gotten a raw deal, Trump was sending a message. It appears Trump was telling those who can testify against him for the Mueller grand juries that they will be pardoned for keeping him out of it if they can allow themselves to be convicted and walk free. Amid all these stories that have been covered heavily over the past week, there is one story that has not, but it happened. Donald Trump settled the lawsuit against him over the fraudulent Trump University by writing a check for $25 million. Trump has repeatedly and famously said he doesn't settle cases the way other, other lawsuit targets do and that he wouldn't be settling this one. That, said Trump, isn't necessary when he's right as he proceeded to lie about the school's Better Business Bureau rating and his claim that he doesn't get sued very often. 
Stephen Bennon, who writes for MSNBC's website, said it best, quoting his article about the Trump University settlement. The circumstances are nothing short of bizarre. A sitting president of the United States has written a check for $25 million to a group of Americans who credibly claimed that he'd ripped them off by perpetrating a fraud. Meanwhile, back in Moscow, Russian hackers are hard at work targeting wireless Internet routers, not just those of the U.S. government or American corporations, but also your wireless Internet router at home. Cybersecurity officials in the U.S. and the U.K. put out a rare joint alert about this on Monday. They report that Russia is also out to steal as much intellectual property as possible. And they call on law enforcement around the world to go after the Russian hackers and for all of us to take even more security precautions. Donald Trump is planning to go face-to-face with Kim Jong-un in early June. This week, we learned more about the run-up to that historic meeting. We learned that North and South Korea had been meeting at the highest levels already in preparation for the talks between those two countries next week. We learned they do so with Trump's blessing. We learned that the U.S. has also been meeting with North Korea to prepare for that early June summit. Now, in a normal presidency, this is where the U.S. Secretary of State would be deeply involved, but the U.S. currently has no Secretary of State. What we have is a CIA director, Mike Pompeo. Trump's nominated Pompeo to be our Secretary of State now that he's kicked Rex Tillerson to the curb. It's beginning to appear Pompeo might not get the job, that he probably won't get the job. Republican Rand Paul plans to vote against him, as do all the Democrats on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Democrats cite the Kansas Republicans' positions on women's rights, gay rights, and his views on Muslim Americans. They worry Pompeo's more interested in pleasing Trump than in serving the best interests of the nation. They sense that Pompeo doesn't care for diplomacy, which is a Secretary of State's main job. And that is the context in which we learn that it was CIA Director Mike Pompeo who has already sat down in face-to-face talks with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Pompeo, the head of our spy agency, instead of a head diplomat. It now appears, and Politico now reports, that Pompeo was sent to meet directly with Kim Jong-un to help Pompeo avoid being the first Secretary of State nominee in 90 years to fail to get committee approval. Remember that $24,000 soundproof phone booth that EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt installed in his office at taxpayer expense? Well, it actually cost $43,000. And to date, we still aren't exactly clear on why Pruitt is the first EPA director to feel the need for such a thing, since there's a government-approved secured room in the same building that houses Pruitt's office. They are known as SCIFs, Sensitive Compartmented Information Facilities, and the EPA already had one. The one Scott Pruitt had you build in his office hasn't even been inspected to see if it meets the government's SCIF standards. And by building this cone of silence booth in Pruitt's office, your Environmental Protection Agency broke the law. A cabinet secretary is allowed $5,000 a year to spruce up the offices. Anything more requires at least notifying Congress that's the law. The agency 
got its money instead from the same pile of money that Pruitt had used to give unauthorized raises to his favorite aides, an emergency fund that's part of the Clean Water Act. Pruitt's also demanded 24-7 security, a sweep of his office for bugs, and a big black high-end Chevy Suburban with Kevlar-like upholstery. Despite all this, Pruitt continues to serve at the pleasure of the president. And the president is pleased. He should be. Pruitt continues to do Trump's deregulating bidding. On Monday, Pruitt's EPA removed from its priority cleanup list two sites, including a toxic sludge pit in Houston that was flooded late last year by Hurricane Harvey. The Office of Management and Budget is now investigating Pruitt's spending at the EPA. Pruitt's also under investigation by the House Oversight Committee. The question is, will any of that prompt Trump to finally dump Pruitt? Yesterday, the entire U.S. island of Puerto Rico was again plunged into darkness as it continues to suffer the effects of last year's Hurricane Maria and its federal government's weak response to the power crisis. The power was knocked out by an electrical subcontractor's accident. It's the second outage this week. Early reports said it could take three days to get the lights back on this time for nearly one and a half million people. The subcontractor has been fired. 2,000 men and women continue to repair the island's power lines. This new Republican tax law never was terribly popular, and it has become less popular despite anecdotes about people who noticed a bump in their take-home pay. A new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll shows that currently only 27% of Americans think the tax cuts that went mostly to the rich are a good idea. 27%. And Republican strategists are finding that self-praise about the tax package isn't working as Republicans campaign against Democrats in the special election so far this year. This news comes just as the GOP was set to roll out an ad campaign touting the tax cuts. Many Republican politicians believe the tax cuts will be more noticed once the IRS refund checks go out. It had been predicted that after Paul Ryan announced he's quitting as House Speaker, quitting his role as Republican leader, other Republicans who had believed in Ryan would be leaving Congress too. Pennsylvania Congressman Charlie Dent, who was already retiring next January, now says he's out in just a few weeks. That means there might have to be a special election in that moderate district to replace Dent, and this year's special elections have generally not gone well for Republicans. It's expected to go even more poorly for them now that the Republican gerrymandered district maps in Pennsylvania have been redrawn by a court in a way far more fair to Democrats than even Democrats had requested. No, things are not going well for Republicans so far in 2018. In New Jersey, Democrats now sport a nearly 20-point lead over Republicans, according to a new Monmouth University poll. Democrats already occupy seven of the 12 seats New Jersey has in the House of Representatives in Washington. This poll indicates New Jersey will soon have even more Democrats in D.C. There's a chance their number goes to 11. The youth vote also appears to be a factor in this year's politics and this year's voting. In D.C., the city council's considering lowering the voting age there in federal elections to 16. The councilman who introduced the ordinance says he was inspired by the high school activists he saw marching by the thousands in the March for Our Lives rallies. 
The last time the federal voting age was changed across the country was four decades ago during the Vietnam War when students noticed they were being called to fight and die but not being allowed to vote on those who decided the wars. The voting age is already 16 in Australia and Scotland. The national fervor for gun control did not fade in a month as many said it would. This time it took two months. A new Gallup poll shows that over those two months, fewer Americans see guns as a top concern. Most of the drop-off came just in the past month, perhaps for the reasons that have already occupied the bulk of this little rundown of the week's news. Government dissatisfaction now tops our list of concerns. Guns fell to fourth place, falling from 13% thinking it's our top priority to the 6% it is now, more than half. Republicans and Democrats began to lose interest. The poll numbers indicate that the marches in March kept the issue alive. But with students back in class, April's been quiet. That changes again tomorrow with a national school walkout on the 19th anniversary of the Columbine High School Massacre of 1999. Guns may have slipped on the national priority list, but the students who survive haven't stopped marching. And they haven't forgotten. Before John Kelly became Donald Trump's chief of staff, Trump spent some time listening to off-the-rails radio talker Alex Jones. Among other conspiracy theories, Jones pushed the notion that the mass murder at Sandy Hook Elementary never happened, that it was all staged as left-wing propaganda, that it was all a hoax. Alex Jones accused the grieving parents of faking it. He accused them of being liars and actors. Alex Jones insisted that grieving father Neil Heslin had lied about holding his dead son's body during an NBC interview with Megyn Kelly. Heslin and other families are now suing Jones, alleging defamation of character, each for more than a million dollars. Jones had accused other parents of lying during their CNN interview with Anderson Cooper. Jones' own lies led a Florida woman to make death threats against one of the Sandy Hook families. Included in the lawsuit against Alec Jones is InfoWars itself, the alt-right online video news service that employs Jones, and InfoWars reporter is also named in the lawsuits. Meanwhile, back in Parkland, Florida, a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High has been arrested after leaving a loaded Glock 9mm handgun in a restroom. The gun wound up in the hands of a homeless man who fired the gun while apparently drunk. The teacher has been charged with failing to safely store a firearm. The homeless guy was charged with firing a weapon while intoxicated. In a surprising turn, Stoneman Douglas gunman Nicholas Cruz has an inheritance that he now wants to donate to the victim's families to distribute as they see fit. Cruz killed 17 people at that high school. He offered to plead guilty if he could be spared the death penalty Prosecutors rejected that offer. They will accept the inheritance on behalf of the victims, which is apparently hundreds of thousands of dollars. Teachers are continuing to push ahead. Arizona teachers stood up to be heard, and they were. Their governor has now promised them a 20% raise by 2020, starting with 9% pay raises this year. Teacher wages in Arizona currently rank among the bottom six states with the lowest pay. The average American teacher makes almost 59000 a year. That's down from previous years. 
Teachers in Oklahoma have called off their nine-day walkout without satisfaction. They say they've negotiated with everyone they could at the state capitol and have run out of options. They did persuade the lawmakers to spend $450 million on school spending, and the teachers say they will keep fighting. But like the students, they had to get back to class for now. Oklahoma ranks 49th in teacher pay, nearly ten grand a year below the national average. In Kentucky, Republican Governor Matt Bevin has apologized for saying the teacher strike in his state left students without supervision, making them vulnerable to drugs and sex and sexual abuse. There were teachers protesting outside the state's Capitol building after Bevin vetoed some education spending bills there, which included teacher raises. The teachers left their classrooms and staged rallies at the Capitol to pressure lawmakers to override the governor's vetoes. In his apology, Bevin said, many people have been confused or just misunderstand what it was I was trying to communicate. And to think that all of this started with a successful teacher uprising in West Virginia earlier this year. Like Sully Sullenberger before her, another commercial airline pilot has become a hero, even after losing a passenger in a catastrophic engine failure. An engine burst apart, apparent case of metal fatigue. There was loss of life as one of the two jet engines on Southwest Airlines Flight 1380 burst into pieces. Shrapnel flew toward the plane, blowing out a window. A mother of two was sucked into that window when the plane lost cabin pressure. Passengers pried her out of the hole, but with fatal injuries. Several other people were injured. Oxygen masks had also dropped from above the 149 passengers who put them on and either prayed or shouted words of encouragement to each other. Some phoned and recorded farewells as their plane rapidly lost altitude. They were in good hands. Ten-year Navy fighter pilot Captain Tammy Jo Schultz was their captain, and she calmly radioed air traffic control. Southwest 180, we're single-engine. We have part of an aircraft missing, so we're going to need to slow down a bit. She also asked for medics on the runway, adding, we've got injured passengers. A controller responded, injured passengers, okay, and is your airplane physically on fire? No, it's not on fire, radioed the pilot, but part of it's missing. And then she added, they said there was a hole and uh, someone went out. Captain Schultz, a pioneer among female pilots in the military, made her tricky descent in Philadelphia National Airport safely and as smoothly as possible. She had lost a passenger and saved 148 others. Quoting one, I'm going to send her a Christmas card with a gift certificate. She was awesome, nerves of steel. This is a true American hero, wrote another passenger on Facebook. After touchdown, Schultz entered the cabin to speak with each passenger personally. All the Starbucks will be closed one afternoon next month. Monkeys in the news and my raccoon got too high in the third and final segment of next. Listening is the new reading. And Audible.com is your best online audio bookstore with the biggest selection of digital audiobooks. Bestsellers like Fire and Fury, Russian Roulette by David Korn and Michael Isikoff, and of course, James Comey's A Higher Loyalty. You don't even need an internet connection to listen, so you can listen anywhere. And you won't lose your place even if you switch devices. There's no equipment to buy, just download the free app. Because Audible.com is an Amazon company, you can count on privacy, security, and satisfaction. You can sign on securely with your Amazon account. 
And if you don't like a book, you can exchange it for another free. As a member, you'll get a credit each month for a free book. Every month, any book, regardless of price and exclusive to members discounts of 30%. Membership is just $14.95 a month, a library for about what you'd pay for a single book. And you can cancel any time and keep your books. Even if you shop Amazon elsewhere, this podcast gets a small commission if you join Audible through the link at buzzburbank.com. Just click the Audible link on my webpage just below the list of my recent shows. Thank you for choosing Audible through me and for supporting this free news through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. If you shop at Food Lion in Colorado, Florida, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia, or West Virginia, you should look at your eggs. Some two dozen people have gotten sick with salmonella poisoning after eating certain brands of eggs that are shipped to stores and restaurants. The FDA says don't eat them, throw them away, or return them to the place of purchase for a credit or a refund. 200 million eggs have been recalled in nine states, including one sold under the brands Coburn Farms, Country Daybreak, Food Lion, Glenview, Great Value, Nelms, and Sunshine Farms. And a Pennsylvania company is recalling nearly 9,000 pounds of ready-to-eat salads after an E. coli outbreak that spread to several states and sickened dozens of people. This contamination has sickened about three dozen people in nearly a dozen states. Three of the victims suffered kidney failure. So far, none have died. A study by J.P. Morgan Chase finds that millions of Americans are spending much of their tax refunds to buy health care insurance. One economist says she expected more traditional spending choices like a new refrigerator. But quoting her, what I wouldn't expect is that people go out and spend on these really basic necessities. A federal appeals court yesterday unanimously ruled that Ohio's defunding of Planned Parenthood is unconstitutional. The defunding was passed by Ohio's Republican legislature and signed by Republican Governor John Kasich. The FDA has just approved an experimental drug made from marijuana plants to treat seizures in two rare forms of childhood epilepsy. This experimental drug is basically CBD oil, which is sold over-the-counter in parts of the U.S. The experimental drug is a strawberry-flavored syrup that includes cannabinoids, but almost no THC, which is the compound that makes recreational users high. Medical marijuana has been approved in 29 states and in Washington, D.C. And after personally negotiating a deal with a Republican senator from Colorado, Trump has promised to get Jeff Sessions to back off his plan to enforce federal pot laws in Colorado, which chose to legalize pot within its borders. Senator Cory Gardner had refused to vote for Trump's Justice Department nominees if he didn't get Sessions off his case. We're not certain what effect Trump's agreement will have on Sessions' nationwide plan for a marijuana crackdown. The Trump administration's already demonstrated some single-state favoritism by exempting Florida from its plan to open oil drilling on the rest of the nation's coastlines. For Trump, the difference may be that in Florida, the governor with an anti-environmental history is now running for a seat in the Senate that Trump needs. And although skepticism still abounds, the tax on fattening soft drinks has started working. Philadelphia has reported on its soda tax, a penny and a half per ounce on sodas, fruit drinks, and energy drinks, all of which get partial blame for our obesity epidemic. 
The beverage industry and conservative voters called it government overreach, and the industry spent millions to fight the implementation of this plan, which can add 18 cents to the price of 12 ounces. The industry made noise for its own good reason. Sales of all these drinks have fallen dramatically in Philadelphia. The sale of bottled water there, though, is up since water is not subject to the tax. It will take time to know if the diminishment of sugary drinks has had the desired effect on people's health. Starbucks will be closed on the afternoon of May 29th. That's the day it will train its 175,000 employees on racial sensitivity. It's been quite a week for Starbucks. At a store in Philadelphia, two black men were arrested for not buying anything as they waited to be joined by someone else. One white customer bravely stood and asked the officers, why would they be asked to leave? He asked the other customers, does anyone else think this is ridiculous? It's absolute discrimination, said the white man, as two black men were led away in handcuffs on defiant trespassing charges. In the days that followed, protesters carried signs reminding Starbucks that coffee is black. The manager who called 911 no longer works for the company anywhere. City officials are investigating all the Starbucks within the city limits, and Starbucks has hired two civil rights groups and former Attorney General Eric Holder to investigate itself. Starbucks CEO has since met twice with those two men, once to apologize, a second time to offer his corporate help in developing their business. And all 8,000 of Starbucks stores will be closed on the afternoon of May 29th. Uber is adding a 911 button to its app, along with a place to list several people who can, at the passenger's request, track their journey or be contacted in an emergency. Uber is also strengthening its background checks on drivers, all of this to repair a shaky safety record. Uber's been criticized over drivers who sexually assaulted female passengers, and this year an Arizona woman was hit and killed by an Uber self-driving car. Uber says that 911 button can save lives, citing federal figures that estimate as many as 10,000 lives a year could be saved if first responders could make their emergency call even one minute sooner. And about first responders, a new study shows that more of them died last year from suicide than died in the course of their often dangerous work. 103 firefighters and 140 police officers took their own lives just last year, each profession up by 10 deaths from the year before. 911, what's your emergency? Dwayne Johnson's sci-fi adventure Rampage was the top movie this week with nearly $35 million. A Quiet Place is now in second, but with a strong $33 million, thanks to word of mouth from its opening week. Please use the Fandango link just below the episode player at buzzburbank.com. Double Oscar winner Milos Forman has died at the age of 86. Born in the Czech Republic, Forman became the director who brought us One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Hair, Amadeus, and more. There was a wave of passings this past week, the likes of which we don't usually see. Seven notable people are gone in the past seven days. Here are the other six. A battle-wounded U.S. Marine, who later became a favorite character actor, has left us at 74 with pneumonia. R. Lee Ermey found it fairly easy to play a loud and foul-mouthed drill instructor in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Ermey spewed those obscene tirades for the camera without a script. He made them up himself.
based perhaps on experience. He says it terrified the other actors. Ermey played a helicopter pilot in Coppola's Apocalypse Now. The Emporia, Kansas native also played the sheriff in 2003's Texas Chainsaw Massacre and was the voice of a green plastic soldier named Sarge in the Toy Story movies. The woman who groomed the stand-up comedians who entertained us in the 80s and 90s televisions, talk shows, and sitcoms has died at 87. Mitzi Shore owned L.A.'s comedy store and nightclub where she was both loved and feared. It was Shore who largely determined which comedians would make it to the big time with a shot on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Our TV buddy Harry Anderson is also gone at age 65. The cause of death has yet to be disclosed. Anderson was a magician at heart, starting out as a street performer. We knew him as Grifter Harry the Hat on Cheers and as Judge Harry Stone on the 1980s NBC hit Night Court. Co-stars and others say Harry Anderson was every bit as friendly and kind and funny and tricky as you'd expect him to be. Two very different radio personalities left us this week. Carried in the U.S. and Canada talking UFOs and the paranormal from midnight to dawn, the nationally syndicated Art Bell has died at 72. Some premier network stations still carry his original show somewhere in time. And the beloved Carl Castle, a newscaster who turned comedian for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, has expired at 84. Castle was once the Walter Cronkite of NPR as the credible voice of the network's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Listeners never expected to hear him doing impressions of everyone from Henry Kissinger to Lindsay Lohan. The week's loss that's gotten the most attention, of course, is that of former First Lady Barbara Bush. Her cause was literacy, but she supported Planned Parenthood, questioned why any woman would vote for Trump, and told her son Jeb and the world that there had already been enough Bushes in the White House and that it was time to end America's political dynasties of Bushes, Kennedys, and Clintons. Barbara Bush was popular for speaking her mind. She would later call Jeb the most qualified man in the 2016 race as Trump mocked her younger son. Barbara Bush is matched only by Abigail Adams in having both a husband and son serve as presidents. She also called the shots within the family, keeping the boys in line as best she could. Mrs. Bush was also a politically savvy matriarch who kept a card file of friends and potential campaign donors in the early days that grew to more than 10,000 names on a Christmas card list. She will be buried Saturday. Former presidents will attend. Melania Trump will go on behalf of the current administration. At Hudson Bay High in the town of Vancouver, Washington, the physics teacher had a rule about cell phones during midterms. They were banned, even for just listening to music. No music during a stressful test was a non-starter for one student who brought his record player and a pair of headphones. It wasn't a cell phone, and it couldn't be used to cheat, so the teacher let it pass and posted a pic of this turntable on Twitter. Washington State Police this week responded to the report of a truck that had overturned in a roundabout and spilled its load. It was a huge load of manure that reportedly took crews hours to clean up. Doctors in Sichuan Province, China, say they have removed a disposable lighter from the stomach of a man who had swallowed it 20 years ago. The man knew he had swallowed the lighter. 20 years ago, which is never a problem until his recent abdominal pains. 
The procedure took 10 minutes, and the man is now a cigarette lighter lighter. A St. Petersburg, Florida man has been arrested for insurance fraud. He told investigators the injuries to his foot were caused by the big O that fell off the sign at a Hooters restaurant. He claims the wind blew it down during Hurricane Irma. Hooters, uh, check the security video. It's not what happened. The man had removed the O, injured his foot, and had tried to get free food and drinks for his friends. In Buenos Aires, security video from a Shell gas station shows a naked man walking about with a sex toy dangling from his backside. He appeared to be uncomfortable and was walking around shouting, Call the doctor! Ambulance workers say the man made no attempt to cover himself as they approached to assist him. It's a good thing he's not modest. Phone video shot by a witness has gone viral. And monkeys in the news again. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has agreed to hear a copyright case involving the selfie taken by a crested macaque monkey. Animal rights activists argue the monkey took the picture and should get any profits from this amusing and perfectly framed photo. The photographer says it's his camera and that the monkey snatched it away from him, only taking the picture by accident. And a U.S. appeals court has decided the monkey side might have a case. So they've agreed to hear it out. In fact, the two sides have already settled out of court, but the appeals court has now rejected that settlement and insists that it will rule on the outcome. Monkeys in the news. And since you're wondering, the monkey that hung out for a while near a Miami Beach strip club has been sighted again, and we may have learned a bit more about him since this time he was spotted near a deli in a synagogue. The witness says the monkey moved so quickly there wasn't time for a photo, so he shouted, monkey, monkey, but he says no one paid any attention. This is Florida, after all. And finally, firefighters in Wayne Township, Indiana, responded to their doorbell ringing at 2 a.m. It was a woman who said her pet raccoon had smoked too much marijuana and was extremely stoned. Rescue workers say the raccoon had more likely inhaled someone else's smoke. They say the animal's life was not in danger, that he just showed the usual symptoms of lethargy seen in recreational users. As much as we love animals, tweeted the firefighters, there wasn't much we could do. As with humans, the high eventually wore off and the raccoon is fine. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.